Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we intubate and gently introduce weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll talk about X and exits. On the prowl once again, Victoria Bond corners her anaesthetist at the Nepean Hospital. She spoke to Jacqueline McPhee. Hi, my name is Jacqueline McPhee. I'm a doctor. I'm currently training in two specialities. The first one is ICU and I'm also studying in anaesthetics. So you've trained in the UK, is that correct? Yes, um, I went to Glasgow University and worked there for about three years before I came to Australia. And we were having a conversation last week about how your experiences in the ICU and in palliative care have differed in the UK compared to Australia. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. Basically, my experiences in the UK, as concerns ICU, we have much smaller ICUs and they're run by anaesthetists. In Australia, they're much larger, they're more developed, and they're run by intensivists. It's a whole new speciality that's really developed in Australia, but not necessarily in other countries. And that has heaps of benefits. But one of the drawbacks I thought I'd encountered quite a lot is the fact that in Australia, kind of old people who are maybe at the end of their lives and are um, getting things like pneumonia that in the UK would not be accepted into intensive care are accepted in Australia and can be there for weeks, getting lots of invasive procedures, um, lots of family conferences, lots of really things that we just would not do in the UK, things that would be perceived as actually over-treatment and unnecessarily prolonging life. So we had a bit of a panel discussion on diffusion and we encountered the problem between euthanasia as opposed to do not resuscitate. Mm -hmm. Can you chime in a little bit about that? I think there's a big difference between euthanasia and do not resuscitate. As far as I'm concerned, euthanasia is actively giving more of a drug or more of a treatment than you otherwise would need to in order to consciously end someone's life. Um, there's a very fine line sometimes in palliative care where you need to give a lot of morphine, for example, in order to alleviate someone's pain. Everybody differs in their opinion, but I think that if that's the amount of morphine that someone needs to get rid of their pain, then that's the amount they need. There's also a common misconception actually about morphine that um, it kills people, and there's really good evidence to show in palliative care that giving morphine actually prolongs people's lives, makes them live longer because they're more comfortable, at least that's the assumption. We're also speaking about how the onus is increasingly on the doctor to provide the patient and probably the patient's family with the option not to treat. Do you think this is the solution? Um, it could be. Uh, it makes me think of one hospital that I worked in in the UK where every patient who came through the door, didn't matter if they were 2 or 102, they had to fill out um, on arrival at the front door an end-of-life pathway form, which basically was a resuscitate or do not resuscitate order. Um, and, you know, most people say, yes, I want to resusc be resuscitated, but people over about 65 or people with really complex problems, then they actually started to stop and think about it and think, do I really need to be resuscitated? Do I want this? Um, 
you know, and they'd start to ask questions about um, what the likely outcomes were if they were resuscitated. Is it going to be useful? What will I be like whenever I come out of it? Is it something that you think would be would help me? And I, I find that discussion was much more open in the UK. Here, the onus is very much to treat, treat everybody and ask questions later. And actually sometimes it can be really difficult to convince families of people who are nursing home bound, don't walk, don't have any quality of life, that it's okay to say it's to, not to treat because the families, their, their instinct is to do something, to help, and to, to, to not do something, just sit by, if that's their decision. They find that really difficult. Doctors find it easier because they're emotionally detached and because they've seen time and again what happens when you do resuscitate and what you don't. And um, they're much more able to think, of, make a kind of a clinical judgment. Families just want everything done. They don't want that responsibility of that decision on their heads because they'll feel guilty for the rest of their lives, which in my opinion they shouldn't, but that's how they feel and there's no taking that away from them. There's no changing that. Yeah, the ideal situation, obviously, would be to have these discussions with your loved ones before the incident happens. Well, exactly. They have um, the advertising campaign on the TV at the moment dis discussing organ donation. Well, I think resuscitation should be exactly the same. In fact, at the tender age of 25 back home, I'd already filled out a, um, a living will. Um, I said exactly what I did and didn't want. Now I'm coming from a medical background. That might be a bit different, but... Um, I think that it's something that everyone should think about and maybe discuss with their loved ones, especially if they have if their illness, they have an illness or things are starting to decline in old age. If you actually stop and ask the patients themselves while they're in reasonable health, many of them will tell you that they probably don't want to be resuscitated. It's not something, but, it, but it's not something people want to bring up, and so it's not something they know until it's too late and they can't ask anymore. And they've been resuscitated? Yep. And sometimes successfully, sometimes not. And... Sometimes you do get an outcome that you weren't expecting and it's positive, but more often than not, it's a negative outcome and you can have even worse things happen afterwards. And as doctors, we can't play God. We, we can't know what that person was thinking beforehand. Exactly. So in Australia, we definitely do tend to resuscitate and ask questions later, as you said. Exactly, and we tend to go very much on what the family says is the patient's wishes because that's all we've got to go on. That was Dr. Jacqueline McPhee at Nepean Hospital discussing her experiences and thoughts about end-of-life care. So we have in the studio Julie Ann Popple. Julie Ann, what do you think? You've heard Terry Pratchett is considering whether he's going to go for assisted suicide and he's been involved in a documentary. Yeah, so I recently read on the internet that he's actually got the forms from the... Uh organisation Dignitas in Switzerland, but he hasn't signed them yet because he says he's got a book to finish and um, various other things he wants to do before he, uh, he makes his exit. And also he's made the point that he'd prefer to be able to have his uh, suicide or euthanasia occurring in uh, England, in his back garden, uh, preferably on a sun chair, as I understand it. His uh, recent documentary, which is... Uh, called, which was aired recently in the UK, was called Choosing to Die. It sparked a bit of controversy, obviously, because it is a quite a diabolical topic, uh, because it actually featured a terminally ill patient, Peter, visiting the Dignitas Clinic in Switzerland and taking a cocktail of chemicals and uh, dying on camera, as it were. 
so as you can imagine this has uh, offended some viewers and uh, it would be interesting to see if this comes comes on air in Australia very interesting I don't know what broadcasting standards or whether anyone would be concerned about whether they'd look at that as exploitation of somebody's death or encouragement for suicide or, or what problems they might have with it. But it's always, it's a passionate subject for everybody. Oh, absolutely. And, and given the government, the current government's lack of um, willingness to discuss this issue, I would imagine there might be uh, no opportunity to view this well, that's right. You mentioned he wanted to do this in the UK, but mm-hmm. he's unable to because it's illegal. Yeah. And in Australia, it's illegal as well. Yeah. Yes. And that's one of those things that the Greens have tried to raise in Parliament. Uh, when they first became in a coalition with the Labour Party in Australia's federal parliament, they tried to get up a bill on voluntary euthanasia, and I don't think they got it to a vote. Uh, it was interesting when Terry Pratchett actually visited Sydney recently. I went to see him at the Opera House. And I saw that. Yeah, he talked a bit about uh, euthanasia. He talked about all sorts of things that have happened in his life. But it was interesting that the media here immediately jumped on that particular issue and reported it in the, in the papers, saying that, you know, Terry Pratchett wanted to have a word with our Prime Minister, but he said at this particular event, I don't know if you recall, but he said... Uh, that, you know, he's already trying to have a conversation with David Cameron, so one Prime Minister at a time. So always look on the bright side of death Just before you draw your terminal breath The completion of the Wallaby Genome Project in 2008 didn't receive a lot of press. But you'd be surprised how much can be learned about mammalian evolution by studying our furry natives. Professor Jenny Graves at the Australian National University has been studying sex chromosomes for over 40 years. But these recent data have provided remarkable new insights into the evolution of sex. We last shared a common ancestor with marsupials and monotremes only 175 million years ago, so they provide a valuable stepping stone on the evolutionary tree. Mick Cavazzini spoke to Professor Graves about the latest pieces in the sex chromosome puzzle. So your work over the past 40 years has looked at the structure and the function of the X chromosome. Now this is a big chromosome that codes for some 1,300 genes, but your work has noted a surprising density of genes involved in brain development and male gonad development and fertility. Can you explain why this particular arrangement of developmental genes might have been selected for during evolution? Well, that's one of the really interesting things because one of the things we found and many people have found over the last 40 years is that the X is special because there's only one of them in males. And that has a tremendous effect because if there's a, a new uh, version of a gene that arises on an X chromosome that's good for males, it will be immediately selected in males because there's no other uh, version of that gene to counteract it. But in females, of course, there's two X chromosomes, so it won't have an effect in females. So that means you get a very strong driving effect to drive genes to acquire new functions that are an advantage for males. And that probably is what explains all the genes that have something to do with male reproduction. And we know there's at least three times more of them on the X than you would expect by chance. Um, Now, 
that doesn't give a very good explanation of why there are all these intelligence genes on the X unless you think that being intelligent is a male advantage trait. Um, and what we think might be happening there is that females are selecting smart males. Over the last couple of million years, women have chosen to mate with males that um, both bring home the bacon because they're smarter and they're better hunters, but, but also perhaps because they have the time to mind the kids and paint on the cave walls and write symphonies and that sort of thing. And so, and sexual selection is incredibly rapid, much more rapid than direct selection. In fact, the thing that people have always found that has never had an explanation is it's often the same genes that are involved both in mental retardation and gonadal dysgenesis. We call them brains and balls genes. So there's many, too many genes that are expressed both in the brain and the testis. And people thought, well, that's strange because the brain's actually not much like a testis. But it does give some credence to the old adage that men often don't think with their brains. Exactly, they think with their balls, yes. <laughs> uh, so I think this particular class of genes is one that just were very handy genes. They make big, multifunctional proteins, and they're the raw material for selection, both in functions for making sperm and also functions making men more intelligent and being selected by women. The fact that females have two copies of the X chromosome means that they would have double the dosage of certain genes compared to males. And the critical importance of gene dosage can be seen in disorders of chromosome number like Down syndrome, which leads to severe mental retardation. So females solve this problem by silencing the expression of an entire X chromosome in every tissue of the body. And the best example of this are those cats with a tortoiseshell fur pattern, which represents the expression of alternative X genes in different patches across the skin epithelium. Now, one of the most interesting findings of the marsupial genomes, however, was the absence of the exist gene that controls this on and off switch. Can you explain a bit more how this works and, and why it matters? Um, it was obvious from the word go that, that X inactivation was coordinated, that one X was totally inactive and the other X wasn't. So that made, makes it a fairly unique sort of system where you inactivate a whole chromosome. Uh, and it was always thought that there must be some centre of inactivation from which inactivity emanated. And there is, indeed, in mouse and man, there's this whole region which contains a gene called EXIST. And what it does is it produces enormously long uh, RNA molecule that is not translated into protein. Instead, it seems to attach up and down the same chromosome and m somehow or other induce that chromosome to undergo many changes and they serve to, to really shut down um, transcription along the genes in that chromosome um, and the more we look at it the more complicated it looks like it is. In the 70s we had a fairly simplistic idea that there'll be one way of shutting down and I was the one who discovered that DNA methylation was um, different in the active and inactive X's in a mouse and I thought hey that's the answer. Well, it's one of five answers, and that's really where I got my start in, um, in my undergraduate thesis, was looking to see if X inactivation happened in kangaroos. Um, but in fact, it's not the same system at all. It's, um, it has the same sort of effect, that is shutting down one X chromosome, but it doesn't seem to be controlled by an inactivation centre. 
and we've shown that there is no exist. Uh, now, that was about oh, 15 years of work because it's actually very difficult to show that something is not there. So we don't know whether there's something else that acts in the same way to control and coordinate X inactivation or whether X inactivation is um, conducted on a much more local scale. We now have a beautiful technique that we can actually look at each single cell. And what we find is a mixture of cells in which one allele is expressed and two alleles are expressed for all sorts of genes on the X chromosome and they're different. So some gene that's completely inactivated and another gene next door will be almost completely active on both X's and we suspect that probably there's a reason for each of those that it may be important for some genes to be compensated by dosage but maybe for other genes it doesn't matter at all. As you mentioned in humans and other placental mammals the, the default body plan is female and male determination is primarily switched on in utero by the expression of a single gene called SRY and this leads initially to development of the testes and subsequently a cascade of hormonal effects. The genome map of the opossum and wallaby has also received a homologous SRY gene. And you'd think that such a simple system would have been around for a long time, given that sex is not exactly a new invention. But your work on the platypus, and indeed more distant genomes, has shown that gender determination is not so black and white, or so blue and pink, in fact, <laughs> as previously thought. So can you tell us a bit more about these other bizarre ways of determining sex? Well, that's been an interesting story because I guess we've always had the bias that everybody's going to be like us. And so the discovery of the SRY gene, which is by my student, um, Andrew Sinclair, uh, we thought, oh, well, we've sold everything now. Uh, and that's certainly the case in all placental mammals. We know that SRY triggers genes that make a test. And in marsupials, as you say, we, we discovered again that there is an SRY gene and it is on the Y. We have no direct proof that it is the male determining gene. And in fact, there's another gene on the marsupial Y that could do the job. We've all, always known in th that in chickens um, that sex chromosomes uh, look completely different. Um, there's a completely different system in which it's the male that has the two identical chromosomes and the female has only a single one. We call it a W and a Z rather than X's and Y's so we don't get confused. So in the 90s we and many other people did comparative gene mapping with chickens and so forth and found that the chicken sex chromosomes are completely unrelated to all mammal sex chromosomes um, and there is no SRY. So there has to be something else and uh, there's been a long battle to find out what that something else is. It looks like it, it's a gene called DMRT1 which is on the Z chromosome but not on the W chromosome. So that means there's two copies in males and a single copy in females and it seems like you need two copies to be male. Um, so there are these two quite different ways of controlling the same pathways and of course we were very keen to find out well what was ancestral and, and how did they switch one from the other. So of course uh, platypuses and other monotremes are right there in the middle of the phylogeny. They're, they're, we're less related to a platypus than we are to a kangaroo but we're more related to a platypus than we are to a bird. So we had a look at platypus sex chromosomes and they are really, really weird, seriously weird. We've been actually looking at them for 
oh, 20 years or so, uh, and it was very hard to sort them out because there are 10. Uh, well, first of all, we looked for SIY over at least 10 years and we couldn't find it. Um, so what we did was to map other genes from the human X and to our surprise, well, they all went to one chromosome, which looked just like the marsupial X, but it's not an X. It was actually chromosome 6. And that included the gene that we know to have been the ancestor of SRY. The SOX3 gene is on that chromosome. There's two copies in males and females. There's no SRY. So, okay, what is on the X's and Y's? So we, we did a great deal of mapping and we were greatly helped by having the genome of the platypus that was done by that time. Um, and what we found to our enormous surprise was that uh, the X and the Ys of a platypus um, contain the whole of the chicken Z chromosome. So the genes that are on the chick Z are alive and well on the platypus X, and that includes the MRT1. So we thought, well, okay, maybe it's the MRT1 that's doing the job in a platypus, but it's the wrong way round. You know, there's two copies in a, in a female and only one copy in a male, and that's, you know, that's the wrong way round. So we still have no idea. So, so the specialisation of the X and Y chromosomes has occurred in the last 150 million years yeah. of evolution. Right. And further evidence of this specialisation is the fact that the Y chromosome is, has been falling apart over that time. It's a, there's a rapid attrition of genes. So does the tight epigenetic regulation of, of the X chromosome follow from the specialization of the Y, or do you think it's the other way around? That oh, that's a good question. In fact, X inactivation looks like a response to, oh, we've just lost a large chunk of the Y chromosome. Help, we've got all these genes that are now um, compromised because they're active in two copies in females and one in males. Therefore, it's not just uh, placental mammals and or mammals in general that have such puny Y-chromosomes? No, it's, it, it seems to be a fact of life. Mm. And it seems to come because you've got a, a, a locus on a chromosome which directs it to be either male or female. And what happens very, very rapidly is that other genes in that locality start acquiring male-specific functions. And then you've got strong drive to maintain that little package of male-specific DNA by ceasing to recombine with the X because, of course, that would disrupt it. And um, Now, as soon as you stop recombining with the X chromosome, all sorts of horrible things happen. Um, that means that you can't repair it. You know, something goes wrong. If you lose a bit of it, you can't easily repair it by recombining with your partner. All of a sudden, you've got this, this little patch, and that the patch spreads as more and more genes take on male-specific functions, and then you get mutations and deletions in that region until you've got almost nothing left. And we've seen that happening again and again completely independently in, in uh, vertebrates and invertebrates, nematodes. You know, it's, it's, it happens very, very rapidly. So that, that first choice of, of a single gene on a perfectly normal chromosome, that is a kiss of death. For that. <laughs> For that chromosome, exactly. Could this perhaps be an explanation for the emergence of multiple different sex determination pathways over time, that once one of them has become degraded so much and fraught with mutations that 
that lineage might have to peter out and, and be replaced by another I'm system. sure that that is a big driving force and we we have some really lovely examples in some strange little rodents that have actually lost their Y chromosome completely um, and they're now uh, inventing all sorts of new systems and in fact SIY has completely disappeared so presumably some other gene has now taken over the baton and is now busy forming a new Y chromosome or maybe a W chromosome and we don't know what the gene is yet but um, presumably when you run out of Y you then start looking around for other genes that can carry on that function. So was this the inspiration for some of the front page articles we saw a few years ago about the extinction of male kind? Well that's something I wrote in a review in Nature 2000. And it was just a, um, it was actually kind of an interesting little article, it was just a one page comment. And in it, I just my, my toss off last remark was that, you know, you'd expect the Y chromosome to completely disappear in 5.8 million years. Um, and I couldn't believe the furor. Oh, the editors jump on that. Oh, <laughs> oh I, I mean, it was, it was hilarious. Uh, um, and I still find it hilarious that men find this very threatening. I'm 5.8 million years. We haven't been human for 5.8 million years. We'll be lucky if we last 100 years, let alone 5.8 million years. But, uh, but uh, it seemed to really capture the imagination. And I thought, well, it's really a useful tool to, to talk to people about the genome is evolving, the genome is changing, sex chromosomes change very rapidly. And uh, in fact, some creatures like molevolves and country rats have gone this path and they're still males it's just they make males in some different way that was mick cavazzini speaking to professor jenny graves of the australian national university about her investigations into the evolution of sex chromosomes she published a summary of her work in the recent book marsupial genetics and genomics co-written with collaborators in australia and around the world and that's all from us in this edition of diffusion if you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions or wild passionate praise, then send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Victoria Bond and Julianne Popple. Diffusion has been produced and panelled by Victoria Bond in the studios of 2SCR, Sydney. And Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more scientific musings next week on Diffusion Science Radio.